We're going to be in Hebrews. Um, This is where we were at last week. Um, I know it's kind of interesting place to be, um, given that uh, the story of Christmas is mostly found in Matthew and Luke. It's in Matthew and Luke that we find the chronology of Christmas, the intricate details of Christmas, the angels, the shepherds, Joseph and Mary, as well as um, the, the information about Herod, who's a despot, who tries to kill Jesus. All of that's found in Matthew and Luke, but we're in Hebrews. And one might ask is, is why are we in Hebrews? And what I would say is, is because Hebrews talks to us about the meaning of Christmas. And I'm going to start where I started last week with the first um, four verses in Hebrews 1. And I don't have them on the screen. If, if you have a Bible or even a digital Bible on your phone or tablet, um, you can go to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And here's what it says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to them. If Hebrews were to be summarized, it could be summarized in three words. Jesus is greater. The first four verses remind us of this fact, and um, it tells us that formally God spoke through the prophets. That's the Old Testament prophets. That's how God spoke to us. But then it says, but now God is speaking to us through his son. It says, in these last days, which is kind of interesting to think about that we're in the last days. But in these last days, Jesus is speaking through his son. The author goes on to list seven characteristics of the son. He says the son is heir of all things, that he is the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustainer, sustaining all things by his word, purifier for sins, and that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And last week I covered all of that. You can find the sermon on the church website. The author closes with this statement. This should be a given, you would think. And verse four says, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And if that weren't enough, the author spends the next 10 verses citing evidence found in Old Testament passages to tell us that Jesus is greater. And he he really wants to point out that Jesus is greater than the angels. And one would say is, is why do you have to point, point that out? Isn't that something that everyone understands? And I don't know that the author of Hebrews is convinced that everyone does understand that. Hebrews is a letter written to Hebrews, to Jewish people. Some people think that it's, it's actually written um, to all Jewish people, yes, but particularly to um, priests who would come to Christ. They're believers. Because there's so many connections to the Old Testament and so many things that are trying to help these Jewish people understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And all of these connections to the Old Testament are the fulfillment of law. But the author goes out of his way to say that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. 
And so there may have been some kind of an infatuation with angels. We know that a lot of writing in the intertestamental, that's a big word, um, that means between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of writing there that talks a lot about angels. And so he may have been trying to set the record straight on angels, which it's kind of interesting because one might argue that even today there's um, a lot of interest in angels. I'm touched by an angel. You remember that? Uh, Roma Downing. And I think that first came out when I was a kid. Maybe that means I'm getting old. So, um, Touched by an Angel was a really popular show. There was the show Angels in the Outfield. Um, it's possible that one of the most beloved angels on screen is who? From It's a Wonderful Life. Does anyone remember his name? Clarence. I'm really impressed. <laughs> I'd never seen It's a Wonderful Life until a few years ago. I mentioned that in a sermon, and someone immediately brought me a VCR tape. <laughs> I didn't have a VCR. <laughs> Does anyone still have VCRs? <laughs> it's so interesting. So there's Clarence, this famous angel from It's a Wonderful Life. The movie begins with these prayers ascending to heaven from people in the town of Bedford Falls on behalf of George Bailey. These prayers, I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in this trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. So there's this conference in heaven between two of the lead angels. Joseph, the one angel, goes to Franklin, the senior angel, telling him, hey, there's a lot of people down there in this Bedford Falls that are praying for this man named George Bailey. And so they decide to send someone down, and there's this conversation about Clarence's. Is, you know, um, what did they say? Is He has an IQ of, like that of a box of rocks or something like that. Um, but he's, he's a good angel. He's been trying to earn his wings for over 200 years. So they summon Clarence. And Clarence lacks the confidence, but he wants to be and do good. And Clarence wants to finally earn his wings. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey and you'll get your wings, Franklin says. You see, George Bailey, the man that needs help, is on the brink of giving up on life. He's this nice guy who's helped people all of his life while in the process giving up his own dreams. Henry F. Potter is the evil banker who takes advantage of the whole town. The last thing that George wanted to do was spend his life in Bedford Falls, but that's where he ends up. A very sentimental movie. In fact, it is actually it got terrible reviews when it first came out because of being too sentimental. It wasn't until it was just released openly to the public that it actually got a following and still being watched today. But at, the, at his lowest point, at his lowest point, George Bailey, it's after Henry F. Potter says, why don't you go to that riffraff that you love so much and ask them to let you have the $8,000 that you need? And at this point, George Bailey wishes that he'd never been born. And Clarence comes. And Clarence shows them how terrible Bedford Falls would be if George hadn't been there. And in the process, Clarence earns his wings. 
The movie wonderfully succeeds at getting across the point that your life has purpose. Clarence says each man's life touches so many other lives, and when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Is what Clarence says to George Bailey. Even today, there's this, at times, this focus on angels. In fact, many of the occultic groups have an unbelievable focus on angels. Some of the confusion about angels comes from Hollywood, which presents angels in a number of different ways. Angels that were once human, you can probably name a show or two like that. Angels who become human, giving up their immortality. Angels who fall in love with humans. I think uh, Nicolas Cage in The City of Angels. Um, Giving up their immortality because of love. Then there's semi-fallen angels with non-heavenly agendas. And there's, I I haven't seen this show, but John Tavolta's foul-mouthed, beer-swilling, womanizing Michael. And then agents of destiny who are tasked with maintaining the plan. That might be touched by an angel. Angels in scripture are very different than Hollywood angels. They're the real deal. They aren't fat-bellied cherubs like what we see on our greeting cards or Christmas ornaments. They are fiery, fearsome creatures. When, and when they appear in the Christmas story, they have to say, don't be afraid, Gabriel to Mary, and fear not to the shepherds. When Zechariah saw the angel we read about in Luke 1.11, we're told that he was gripped with fear. An encounter with an angel is a glorious encounter because angels reflect the glory of God. But the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that angels are not the focus. Jesus is the focus because Jesus is greater. He's the focus of all of creation, of redemption, and of salvation. Again, the theme of this letter is Jesus is greater The author wants to establish in our minds and in our hearts and then in the hearts of the readers that Jesus has always been and always will be superior to every other creature because he is one with the God of Israel. He is the creator even though he has taken on humanity and then taken that humanity into the Godhead. And so the author begins with an argument by saying, He has a better name. He wants us to know that Jesus' status is so great that no angel would ever be able to compare to him. And then he says in Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And then in verse 7 he continues on with this, this same argument. But in this, in this verse, in verse 5, he pulls out two Old Testament passages. There's actually 10 Old Testament passages that are referenced in these verses right here. And so he refers to Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have become your father. And the second one is from 2 Samuel seven fourteen, and it's actually about David. 
and how God is going to establish David's kingdom forever and ever. And so in 2 Samuel 7.14, it says, I will be his father and he will be my son. But the author of Hebrews is bringing that into the New Testament saying, yes, it, it was a reflection on David, but even more so it's pointing towards Jesus. The eternal existence of Jesus is not being questioned here. One might think that that's the case, but it's not. When we hear the word son, we might be tempted to think secondary, but nothing could be further from the truth. The son shares the same nature and characteristics of the father. Michael Kruger in his book on Hebrews for you argues that the Roman world would have understood this better than we do. Because sons formally received the family name when they came of age. Now, they were still sons all the way along. But they didn't receive the full prerogatives of being a son until they came of age. And the author is using this picture to help us understand is is that Jesus has always been and will forever be the son is there was never a beginning to Jesus that he is and was the creator and continues to be. But that as the son, stepping out of heaven, living the perfect life that we can't live and dying on the cross for our sins, and then rising again on the third day, and then ascending into heaven, that there was, in a sense, a coming of age. And that Jesus, who had stepped out of heaven, went back to heaven, receiving even greater glory than he had before. Which is why the author goes on to say, let all of God's angels worship him. In Hebrews 1.6, it says, And again, God brings his firstborn into the world. He says, let all of the angels worship him. Besides being afraid, one of the things that people try to do when they see angels is to worship angels. And the author of Hebrews wants to say, no, worship him. The angels worship him, so worship him. In Revelation 19.10, the Apostle John, and you'd think as is that the Apostle John would know better than anyone, but in Revelation 19.10, the Apostle John, upon seeing an angel, he's so overwhelmed that he fell down to worship the angel. It says, at this I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the throne room of heaven. And one of the things that he sees is angels worshiping God. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, it says, In the year of king, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, angels, each with six wings. 
With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. This is an interesting picture, isn't it? And they were calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And there's this picture of the angels worshiping God on high. Now that's really interesting, but it gets more interesting because you follow that into the New Testament and John, in John 12, 41, argues that Isaiah's vision of the throne room was a vision of Jesus. In John 12, 41, he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. This is the pre-incarnate Christ that Isaiah sees and John is pointing back to Isaiah the prophet and say everything that he saw that you can read about in Isaiah chapter 6 is directly pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is not just worshipped by the angels. He is the ruler of the angels. In Hebrews 1, 7 through 9, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, and so this is, there's almost like this conversation is going on between God and the sun and, and God speaking of the sun, God the father. And this is really complicated, but this is why, this is why we say is, is that God is father, son, and Holy Spirit. And you might ask is, is, where's the Holy Spirit in this passage? He's speaking through the author of Hebrews, revealing God to us. The unseen presence of the Holy Spirit telling us about the Father and the Son. And so in Hebrews 1, 7 through 9, he makes his angels, spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This is a quote from Psalm 45. And there's this throne language that's here. Speaking of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. So this is speaking about the Old Testament throne, and, and he's saying about the Son, Your throne, O God. And so what this means is, is that we, when we read about the throne of God in the Old Testament, we should see it as applying to the Son. Hebrews 10 through 13 goes on to say, He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years never end. And then to drive home the point, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he's still speaking about the son. The quotation literally begins, this quotation from the Old Testament, in the beginning, Lord, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. What does this all mean? 
What does it mean for us? There's a sense in which is, is that we're getting a picture of one of the hardest things to understand about the work of God. is how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in total unity and are unity in their very essence. It's why when the early church fathers were trying to explain who God is and what he's done for us, they had so much trouble explaining it. And being really careful to say that God is one. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who is one in essence and three in person. They didn't make that up on their own as some people claim. Instead, they looked into scripture and they drew it out of scripture. They lifted out of scripture what was being said in scripture and saying, we worship the one God who is three in person. And that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a unity in diversity. Does it sound complex? Yes. I don't know that in our finite minds we can fully understand it. But the Father so loved the world that he sent the Son. And that son lived the perfect life that we can't live. And he walked and he talked and he pointed people to the father because not only does the father love the son, but the son loves the father. And they're always pointing towards each other and saying, we are one. And then the son promised us saying, I will not leave you alone, but I will send the spirit to you. And so the father who loves the son loves us and sends his spirit to us and the spirit and love of the Father and the Son is constantly pointing us toward the Father. And the Father redeems and the Son is the redeemer and the Holy Spirit is working for redemption on our behalf And the Father did not need our attention. But out of being creator, a loving creator, he brings into creation the world, not needing to be loved, but because he is love. He brought the angels into being and then brought us into being. And so the arguments that Christian, the argument that Christians make is, is that there had to be a first cause to the world that we live in. That the world did not come from nothing. That it didn't come from a speck of dust that somehow gathered more dust to itself, but rather that there had to be a first cause, a creator. And we know his name. And he is father. And he is son. And he is spirit. And at the very beginning of creation, the Son brought all things into being and continues to sustain all things by his word. Jesus is greater because he is the Son and because he is eternal. What this means 
It means that it's all about Jesus. This life that we live, we're not here on accident. This life that we live is very purposeful. You are here and you have purpose because of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit works in your life to help you to live the good life. The way that we are to keep the faith and keep on in the faith, as well as to be fruitful, is to have this awe-inspiring, heart-pounding view of God like Isaiah had. In fact, when Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 saw the throne room of God, he says, woe is me for I am a sinful man. And we're told that an angel left the throne and came and touched him on the lips and, and then called him into the ministry that he was to have. And he had this awe-inspiring, heart-pounding view of God that we are encouraged also to have that we are to have the view that Jesus is greater than he's greater than everything else in creation, that he's greater than the problems that we face. He's greater than the sin that we have because he can take it away and no other one can. Reduce Jesus in any way and you end up in bad places. It's almost always what the cults and other religious traditions do is they reduce Jesus or they change the nature of Jesus so that he is no longer who he is in scripture. That's why the apostle Paul, you know, accused the Galatians of leaving Jesus. That the Jesus that they're following is a different Jesus. And so we have to be very careful. It's one of the reasons why we say is, is that that our commitment needs to be to Jesus, not to a church, is the church is but a servant of the Savior. And so our commitment is to be to Jesus. And that's why we don't take oaths or we don't, you know, we, we don't um, place an emphasis on other religious books. Sure, we can read other devotional books, but we don't place an emphasis on other relig- religious books. This is what God has given to us to reveal to us who he is and what he's done for us. And he loves you and me. And we're called to magnify him. And magnify is not like looking through a microscope where something small is made big. Instead, it's more like looking through a telescope where something big is hard for us to see. And you think about the planets and the stars who are off in the distance. And they're hard for us to see, but we have something that brings him or brings whatever that object is up close, that that huge, massive object can be brought up close. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing is is he's bringing Jesus close. And Jesus is so big that this side of heaven, we will not be able to fully comprehend all of who he is. His redemption is so great and he is so mighty that I I believe that even in heaven that it will take eternity for us to begin 
to know the power of God and the greatness of salvation through Jesus worked out by the Holy Spirit. That even in heaven with all of our sins taken away and with purification fully complete, that even there, that our finiteness will cause us to have to get to know him more and more. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners be reconciled. During the Christmas season, we light the Advent wreath. Advent means coming. And it's the reminder that he has come. And so we light one candle each week on our way to Christmas. Um, So this week we're lighting the second candle. And it's the reminder that Jesus has come, but the neat picture of Advent is is that we're not just remembering that he has come, but we're remembering is, is that he will come again. And we're encouraged to worship him. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth. Remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, saying you must be born again. Talking about a spiritual birth, not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth that takes our dead lives because of sin and makes them new again in him. Born to give them second birth, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hebrews chapter 1 ends with this last verse. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? I don't think this is uh, saying that we have a guardian angel. But I think that it is saying that God marshals all of the resources of heaven in order to bring us salvation, even the angels. But the angels weren't enough. We needed someone who is greater. And Jesus is greater. And all of heaven All of heaven's resources have been expended on our behalf. That the best of heaven was literally emptied when he stepped out of heaven, took on flesh to be our savior. If you haven't committed your life to Christ, that's why you're here is to say yes to Jesus, yes to the Savior who stepped out of heaven and literally was tortured and died on the cross to pay for sin. 
And when you say yes to Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Be my savior. I want to follow you. That you're adopted into the kingdom of God. And if you haven't done that, it's that easy. Just say, yes, Jesus. Forgive me for my sin. Be my savior. Let's pray. Father and Lord God, thanks for your grace and for your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with us in every way and that you would help us to live in the fullness of who you are, to have an awe-inspiring, heart-pounding view of what you've done for us through Jesus and to remember that Jesus is greater. He's greater than our problems. He's greater than the things that we read about in the newspaper. He's greater than our sin. And that we can trust you that when all of life is going wrong, that you are the one who makes all things right and that there will be a day when we breathe our last breath here and our first breath in your presence. And Lord, even in a sense, is to look forward to that day when all of our sin will be stripped away and we will be fully living in the righteousness that's provided for us by Jesus. Father, and bless the day and bless our Christmas season as we worship you. We thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.